so good to be with you, so thankful that I'm here this morning as you just heard from Andrew. My name is Austin, I'm a pastoral intern here, and it's just my treat to open up God's Word for you. You know, um, as, as good as it is to hear the quietness of an attentive congregation, um, what's actually sweeter is actually the rustling of the pages of the Bible. As you check and verify what I say against the inerrant words of Scripture. So with that, let me invite you to have your Bibles open. Um, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be running from verses 4 to 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Alrighty. As you come to him, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for how you speak so wonderfully of us as as people who identify in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you give me strength as I open up the word and preach today. Lord, I pray that you solidify in all our hearts what it means to be found in Christ, to have our identity in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me me tell you about Sundar Singh. Sundar Singh. He was born in 1889 uh, into a well-to-do Sikh family living in the Punjab region of India. His father was a wealthy landowner. His mother was, quote, a uh, refined and gifted lady, and his family even boasted a commander uh, in the Indian forces. You know, in his schooling years, he fiercely defended his Sikh background, especially when the missionaries at his village school would encourage him to read the Bible. One time, he even got one of the missionaries' Bibles, He ripped it up and he burnt it in front of them. At his fiercest, he would even ceremoniously wash himself if even the shadow of a Christian missionary fell across him. But you know, the learnings of the sacred Sikh texts and the practice of yoga actually did his soul little lasting comfort. It says in his biography, torn with anguish and driven to despair, one day he took up that hated New Testament and as he read the words, 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. At that moment, the leaven of the gospel entered into his heart. He continued reading long into the night. And what actually happened at dawn was that there was a bright cloud that filled his room. And in the cloud, he saw the face and the figure of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said to him, why do you oppose me? I am your savior. I died on the cross for you. You know, his determined enmity was broken down forever at that moment. With this divine conviction came a sublime sense of forgiveness and acceptance with Christ. You know, his father at first kind of dismissed it, didn't really believe his son's new faith was earnest, but time actually proved otherwise. And so his father actually started pleading with him with tears to put aside these foolish notions of Christianity and to remember the high estate that he had been born into. Uh, Even his wealthy uncle was brought in to help. And so his wealthy uncle brought him into the cellar of his mansion. He opened a safe before Sunda, and before him was presented rolls of banknotes and precious jewels. And in an act of utmost humiliation, his uncle took off his Sikh turban, right, very sacred, and he laid it at Sunda's feet. And he said, all this, all this is yours if you remain with us, as in don't become a Christian. Yet Sunda's heart was filled to overflowing at that point in time with such devotion to Christ, he could do nothing but refuse his uncle's offer. From that moment onwards, it was made very clear to him that he was an outcast. He was an outcast in his family. His father turned against him. His own brother viciously turned against him. His food now was served to him outside the family home, and he was made to sleep on the veranda of his house. He was just as if he belonged to the caste of the untouchables. One last final appeal was made to him through his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law came to him and reminded Sunda that you are a Singh, and Singh means lion. But to become a Christian, Sunda, means you become a dog. But Sunda was resolute in his new identity. With that, his father cast him out of his family home forever. He slept for the last night on the veranda, and before dawn the next day, he was cast out homeless, friendless, utterly destitute. He fled to a nearby Indian pastor's house where he fell violently ill. He had blood flowing from his mouth, and it became clear that before he left, poison had been mixed with the last meal he was served at his family home. By God's good providence, he was miraculously healed. Friends, you know, Sundar's identification with Christ basically stripped him. It stripped him of all the things that previously identified who he was. He was, he was everything that previously defined him. His very identity was stripped of him. But let us not think that he was left without any identity. No, not at all. He was given a new, glorious, and lasting identity. At the end of the chapter in his biography, which describes this bittersweet season in his life, his biographer simply concludes 
the chapter by quoting Henry Francis Light's famous hymn. It should come up on the screen. It says, Jesus, I my cross have taken, or to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from, thou from hence my all shalt be. You know, friends, our identity, our identity is a critical component of our existence. By design, our identity is fundamental in how we make sense of life, isn't it? It is the part of us that remains constant despite having to go to different environments and facing different circumstances. It is also the part of us which we look to to find our sense of worth. The person that we see when we look in that proverbial mirror, right, is our identity. And when we look into that proverbial mirror, it either conjures up a sense of honor or a sense of shame, doesn't it? Lastly, our identity drives so much of what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. We're not like computers. Computers can just perform tasks but have no idea what they actually are. Humans, however, have this inextricable link. We've got this link between who we are and what we do. Right? We've got this link between our identity and our activity. Our identity actually drives our activity. And the reason I'm telling you this is because the next time that we come back to 1 Peter, from verse 11 onwards to about the middle of chapter 3, we are going to be diving headfirst into how we should live. Right? And so this week, before we get there, my prayer is that we lay solid foundations this week of who we are before we get to how then shall we live. Who we are before how then should we live. You see, the first 10 verses of chapter 2 can really be summarized as a declaration of our Christian identity. Verses 1 to 3, which Brendan covered for us so well last week, describes the, the new affections of the Christian identity, our craving like newborn infants for the pure spiritual milk of God. Verses 4 to 5 gives us a new paradigm for validation in our Christian identity. Verses 6 to 8 lays a new foundation for our Christian identity. The first part of verse 9 gives us a new association as part of our Christian identity. And verses 9 and 10 provides us with the new proclamation of our Christian identity. Accordingly, then, for this sermon, I have four points this morning, four fundamentals of the Christian identity that I want to cover. Number one, the new paradigm for validation. Number two, the new foundation. Number three, the new association. And number four, the new proclamation. But really, the heart of today's message, the heart of today's message is to see that a lasting and honorable identity can only be found when we come to live through believe in, and speak of Christ. Let me say that again. A lasting and honorable identity. That is an identity that we need not to be ashamed as when we look into the mirror. A lasting and honorable identity can only be found when we come to live through, believe in, and speak of Christ. Okay, point number one. The new paradigm for validation. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, 
But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, friends, an essential component of identity formation is the necessity for some kind of feedback. We can only form identities if we have a feedback mechanism in our life. We need some form of validation. We need some form of affirmation, some sense of approval that what we're doing is generally on the right track. Any robust identity formation requires this iterative process of validation and revalidation. I mean, this is how Timothy Keller puts it. It should come up on the screen. In the end, we can't say to ourselves, I don't care that literally everyone else in the world thinks I'm a monster. I love myself, and that is all that matters. That would not convince us of our worth unless we are mentally unsound. We need someone from the outside to say that we are of great worth. We are irreducibly social and relational beings. We need someone we respect to respect us. We need someone we admire to admire us. Even when modern people like us claim to be validating themselves, the reality is always that we are just socializing themselves into a new community of peers, of cheerleaders, of people whose approval we crave. So you see, it's not possible for us to validate ourselves, or or as, as Keller puts it, in biblical terms, we cannot bless ourselves. We need someone to bless us. So then the question that begs to be asked is, from where are we to seek our validation? Keller boils it down to just three options. We can look outwards for our validation. We can look to those positioned around us in the established social order for validation. Typically, this is more prevalent. It's more common in traditional types of cultures where we look to a sense of duty or we look to a sense of family or we look to a sense of community for our validation. The second option is that uh, those who are more disposed to look inwards for validation. This seems to be the impulse of our generation, isn't it? Looking within to our desires, to our feelings, as the source of our validation, not realizing actually how prone to external influence this seemingly authentic soul-searching process is. But the third option, the third option is not looking outwards. It's not looking inwards. It's looking upwards. Look at how Peter describes this upward paradigm for validation. Jesus, the living stone, he was rejected, or in other words, invalidated by men. But the question is, did this rejection, did this invalidation destroy Jesus' identity? You know, so vehement was the opposition against Jesus that it actually found its full physical expression when he was crucified upon the cross. He was utterly rejected. But did it destroy him? No. Peter doesn't describe Jesus as some inanimate rock, as some dead historical figure. What does Peter call him? The living stone. The living stone filled with life and life-giving to the fullest sense. How is that possible? I mean, in this age of social media, vitriolic social media, 
We understand too well when people's reputations, their whole identities are destroyed when they're rejected by the cyber masses, right? This degree of rejection that Jesus received should really decimate someone's sense of self-worth. I mean, how was it possible that someone who was so despised by the masses, by the religious elite, by the political elite, able to retain such a living and robust sense of identity? And the answer lies in the next nine words which Peter gives us. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious A single word of validation from above is able to trump a million voices of condemnation. Oh, friends, in this single verse, we are presented with a completely new paradigm for validation. What it truly means to experience lasting, meaningful, and life-giving validation. And that validation is from above. It comes only when we are found to be the apple of God's eye. But you know, you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, hey, but this is Jesus. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Of course this paradigm is at work in his life. This paradigm of earthly rejection and heavenly validation. It's totally applicable. He's the Son of God. But then look at the next verse. Peter says, you yourselves. You yourselves like living stones. He is intentionally using the language of similarity. In other words, he's saying that the paradigm that was at play in Jesus' life should be at play in our lives too. Invariably, it's true, we will experience to one degree or another rejection by the world of some kind. It says in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You know, rejection... As real as it is, as sure as it will come, it can't can't devastate us. It can't crush us. If we are living according to this new paradigm, it cannot and it will not devastate our identity. Why? Because the validation that is in play for Jesus is in play for our lives. In fact, Peter doesn't just repeat the same words that he said of Jesus. When he referred to Jesus, he said that Jesus is chosen and precious in the sight of God. But when he comes to us, Peter deliberately takes the effort to use two Old Testament metaphors to describe just how accepted, just how validated we are in Christ. The first metaphor that Peter uses emphasizes how profound our acceptance is as he likens us to living stones built up as a spiritual house. You know, if you go back to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 6, verse 7, it says that when the house, as in the first temple, was built, it was with stone prepared from the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house when it was built. In other words, the stone for the first temple had to be cut It had to be chiseled to such a degree of perfection that as it arrived at the side of the temple, it could just slot into place, right? And in Jesus Christ, we are likewise deemed acceptable to meet that perfect and holy standard of God to be included in his new temple. 
This, this, my friends, is a metaphor of total heavenly validation. Secondly, Peter says that we are like the holy priesthood, offering acceptable sacrifices to God. Now, let us be under no illusion that offering a sacrifice to God under the old covenant was something easily done. We need only remember back to Cain's offering. What happened to that? Rejected. What about Nadab and Abihu's offering? Rejected. And then struck dead. What about Saul's offering? Rejected. I mean, only several times a year could the priest enter into the holy place to perform their duties. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement could the high priest enter into the Holy of Holies after ritual washing to offer a sacrifice to God. In other words, a tiny subset of God's people during a tiny window of time was accepted into the very presence of God. But through Jesus Christ, Peter tells us that the entirety of who we are Our very identities, the completeness of it, is acceptable to God. And the deeds of our lives done through Jesus Christ is a pleasing aroma to him. This is phenomenal. It's unheard of. Friends, this is a profoundly new paradigm for validation. It frees you from the fleeting and the shifting opinions of men. It gives our soul an everlasting, immovable ballast for our identity. You know, I tell you the truth, my friends, um, just over the last five months alone, coming uh, onto the pastoral team, I, um, I now know uh, more acutely, I guess, what it feels like to have the watching eyes of the entire congregation upon me. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch. Leaders should be watched. They should be observed. And if they're living according to Christ, they should be followed. But I can tell you what, oh so tempting, oh so tempting it has been at times to reorientate my life towards an earthly audience. And it's only been five months. But by the grace of God during this much needed time, it has been a time of a reminder of the fact that my validation comes from God alone through Jesus Christ, right? My acceptance is already established in Christ Jesus. And my heart's ultimate desire should be, right, should be that I live my life as a pleasing aroma to him and him alone through Jesus Christ. And so the question that I want to throw out to all of you is this. What is the paradigm for validation in your life? Are the ups and downs of your life dictated by the applause and the criticism of those around you? Are you churned about by this inner voice that speaks to you, commendation one day and then condemnation the next day? Tossed to and fro by the fluctuations of your feelings and your desires or your identity securely anchored in the fact that you, you, my friends, are living stones, built upon the living stone, therefore established, established already as chosen and precious in the sight of God. Point number two, the new foundation. Read with me verses six to eight. Behold, 
I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected (coughs) has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. In these verses, Peter now turns his attention back to the living stone, Jesus Christ. But this time, he expands on the illustration, doesn't he? Jesus isn't just the living stone. Now he's called the cornerstone. Peter, again, is using language from the Old Testament, namely from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28. You see, friends, the cornerstone in ancient literature and also in ancient architecture, it's the principal stone. It's pretty much the first stone that's laid when you build a building. It's the reference stone for the entire structure. The precision of the cornerstone has implications for the height of the entire building, for the length of the entire building, for the breadth of the entire building. Its implications are massive. And here, Jesus is told to us that he is our cornerstone. His life, his ministry, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his session now in heaven is the basis of our very identity. But how? The question is, how is Jesus our cornerstone? How is it that he's our foundation? By what means are our lives to be aligned to Christ? How, how do we even align our lives to Jesus Christ? Well, our identities are aligned to him by the means of faith, of belief. That's what it says in the text. It's not primarily following his example. It's not what would Jesus do. As good as that is, that's not primarily what it's about. It's not about trying to replicate his ministry or his life. No, Peter says, he doesn't say, believe him. He says, believe in him. This means aligning our identity to him. Not by works, but by believing in him, which means trusting in him, trusting in what Jesus has done. You see, we humans, we've got a certain way about us, don't we? We crave to build an identity for ourselves based off what we do and what we achieve. Today, we live in a deeply meritocratic society. We are constantly assessed and constantly assessing others based on what they have achieved. You know, a dear brother of ours who uh, works in human resources in HR, he was sharing with us recently the very interesting insights um, that he has observed about human nature um, because in his role he has to oversee the whole performance review process at his company. And he was just telling us just what he's observed, just the constant inclination for us to speak generously about what we've done and a little bit more sparingly about what others have achieved. But this is not a recent phenomenon, is it? For even during the time of the building of the Tower of Babel, the natural human inclination has always been that we build something that we can point to and say, this is what I've achieved. This is what I've built from my life. And therefore, my worth, my, my, my value, my identity is tied up with this. 
You know, all throughout human history, the warped human heart continues to cry out the same refrain. Come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. But if Jesus Christ is our cornerstone, it's not our works that we boast in, but it's his finished work at the cross. It's not our life that we boast in, but the perfect life of Jesus Christ. It's not even our ministry that we marvel in, but the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's not the sacrifices that we've made, but it's the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to believe in him. And this is the sobering part, and that is why Peter tells us that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So that honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You know, just this last week, I heard a very fascinating contrast between the concept of guilt and the concept of shame. Guilt is feeling bad for the wrong things that you've done. Shame, however, is feeling bad for who you are, who you fundamentally are. Shame is feeling bad for who you fundamentally are. And so on that final day of judgment, for those who have not believed in Christ and his finished work as their cornerstone, not only will there be this crushing sense of guilt for the wrong things that you have done, but equally Or even more horrifying, there will be irreparably the humiliating shame in the uncovering of who you fundamentally are. You could very well have been the inventor of electric cars. You could have discovered the cure for some terminal illness. You could have volunteered all your life for various charities. You could have served even diligently in every single church ministry. But without the righteous covering of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the piercing gaze of God on that fearful day will uncover the shame of the nakedness of your life. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, as you built for yourself an identity, as you constructed your so-called Tower of Babel, you casted aside the cornerstone of Christ and you have established your own works, your own achievements as the foundation of your identity. And as such, the cornerstone of Christ, which came to you as a loving word of grace and kindness, you have disobeyed, and now the notion of the gospel is utterly offensive to you. And Jesus Christ has therefore become a stone of stumbling for you. Let me finish this point by saying this. There are, there's only two responses to Jesus Christ. Only two responses. Jesus only mentions two men at the end of the Sermon of the Mount. Two men. The man, the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Only two men he mentions. You can either make Christ your cornerstone, the foundation of your identity, or you cast him aside and he becomes a stone of stumbling for you. There is, my friends, no third option. There is no third option. Heed the words of commentator Leonard Gopolt. 
This is what he says. It should come up on the screen. Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go about the daily routine and pass him by by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin. And so my plea for you today is that you stumble no more, but instead that you come to Jesus Christ, that you cast aside any trust in your own good works, that the entirety of your identity may rest upon him and his perfect righteousness so that you will be met with honor and not shame on that final day. Point number three, the new association. For those of us who have put Christ as our foundation of our identity, our cornerstone, the expectation of our future is of honor and not shame. We are new creations in him. But not only that, we are brought into a new identity with new associations, a new community of relationships. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Notice it doesn't say you are a chosen individual, a royal priest, a holy man, a person for his own possession. No, instead every word that he uses is expressed in corporate terms. Thomas Schreiner puts it as this, the emphasis throughout is collective. The church as a corporate unit is the people, the priesthood, the nation. The emphasis is typical of the New Testament. In contrast to our more individualistic concern in the present, the West tends to focus on individuals relating to God, while Peter was more conscious of people's becoming part of a new corporate identity that is chosen by and that relates to God. And so the the challenge here is for us to assess whether this new association, this new community of relationships as part of our new identity is one we are genuinely leaning into. Are we leaning into this new community we've been given as part of our new, com- new identity? Or do we rather see this corporate aspect as you know, just an optional extra? You know, I was, uh, in, when I was in the final year of university, such a significant part of people's identity in the final year of university was where they were heading to next year, which organization, which corporate they were heading off to the next year. Uh, I'm starting at Westpac next year, or I've landed a grad role at KPMG. There was this palpable excitement in the air if you had a place secured for you next year, right? And there was also a notable disappointment if you didn't, right? But what about us today? Is there that palpable excitement in your soul that you are part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? And I want to speak particularly, I guess, to you that are skirting around the edges of really pressing into this new association that God has called you into. Let me give you four reasons to press in all the more. Number one, Humility. Every race in the world has a reason for racial pride, whether you have great cooking or you've got the largest standing army. But being part of this chosen race, right, humbles us. 
We are a chosen people, and we know that we're chosen not because of our own worth, but because we are found in Christ. So I find it deeply humbling coming every week and just looking around. Like To be honest, I wouldn't be friends with most of you if God didn't grab us together and put us into an assembly together, right? But looking around, right, different ages, as Carolina spoke, different um, races, different cultures, he brings us together, and that's deeply humbling. Number two, servant-heartedness. Peter, quoting from Exodus 19, tells us that we are a royal priesthood, right? And a priesthood, yes, it serves the king, it serves God, and it serves the people. And therefore, when you stay at the edges of the people of God, it really dwindles your opportunities for service, doesn't it? I would go as far as to say that, nearly, that it's nearly impossible to grow in godly servant-heartedness if you linger at the periphery of God's people. Number three, holiness. Exodus 19 affirms that we are a holy nation. You know, we're supposed to be set apart. I remember one preacher, he was saying, I preach so furiously, so emphatically to you on a Sunday because I only have 45 minutes of your week. The rest of your week, you are bombarded and drawn into the world for the remaining 10,035 minutes of the week. How much more difficult is it then to set yourself apart, to be holy unto God, if you gather only occasionally with God's people? Number four, surrender. You know, one of the key realizations of the Christian life is that it is a life of active surrender. Um, Peter says here, a people for his own possession, or if you want to use Paul's language, you are not your own, you've been bought at a price. You know, the life of active surrender is best learned when observing others. You know, I find this the case. When I see other people actively surrendering their lives to God, it is a huge encouragement, right? But when you pull yourself away from these real-time examples in your GCs, in Sunday gatherings, you, you actually pull yourself away from real-time examples of seeing that lived out. So therefore, my point is to embrace the corporate aspect of your Christian identity. Finally, point number four, the new proclamation. Let's have a look at now how Paul clo- uh, Peter closes out verses 1 to 10. He says, verse 9, that you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you are now God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, the new identity that we have in Christ brings with it not just new affections. We covered that last week. It does give us new affections, doesn't it? But it brings with it also new expressions of that new affection that you may proclaim, right? You know, church, so often when we find in the scriptures that when God brings about a new deliverance for his people, his people cannot help but to sing to their God. What? A new song. A new deliverance means a new song. In Exodus 15, as soon as people pass through the, God's people pass through the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is destroyed by the waters, what does Israel do? All Israel breaks out into a new song unto the Lord. As Jesus himself taught us, out of the abundance of the heart does the mouth speak. And this is often quoted of C.S. Lewis. 
This is what he says. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete. It's incomplete till it is expressed. So then the question for us in our new identity, friends, is whether our new identity in Christ is being expressed all the way to its appointed consummation. Our hearts brimming to overflow such that our mouths are proclaiming. When was the last time that you testified about the joy of your salvation with the same excitement as when your favorite team made the finals? You know, I don't say this to guilt trip you at all. I I really don't. But my heart's desire is that your joy would be complete. That your new identity in Christ finds its fullest expression. Like a bottle of Dom Perignon champagne that is never popped open and shared amongst friends is a Christian whose mouth remains closed in the midst of unbelievers. Therefore, church, let us be proclaimers as part of our new identity in Christ. You know, let me close now. You know, at the end, at the beginning of the sermon, I gave you the story of Sunda Singh, and um, I quoted what the biographer quoted as part of the conclusion to a chapter, a hymn written by Henry Francis Light. So as I close, let me just tell you a little bit about Mr. Uh, Henry Francis Light. When Henry was a child... Um, his parents separated and um, his father remarried. His father me- remarried and he palmed him off to boarding school. And this is tragic. He, um, while he was at boarding school, his father actually wrote to him and told young Henry, I think it's best that you don't refer to me as father anymore. I think it's best that you refer to me as uncle. And from that point, from that point onwards, Every time that he infrequently did write to Henry, he would sign off, not your father, but he would write, your uncle. As you can imagine, this effective disowning of him and the rejection of Henry by his very own father must have, at the the very least, deeply disorientating, if not devastating, for his identity. Yet by the grace of God, at the age of 23, he was saved, and despite the rejection of his earthly father, he entered into the loving acceptance of his heavenly father. He then went on to be an Anglican minister and wrote many poems and hymns proclaiming his delight in God. Let me finish by reading you one of my favorite stanzas from one of his hymns. This is what it says. It should come up on the screen. Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. And while thou shalt smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the fact that you've given us a new and glorious identity in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your scriptures which has unraveled to us the fullness of this new identity, its corporate aspect, its validation from you, its cornerstone in your son, and the fact that our identity can be expressed fully in the proclamation of who you are. Help us to live that out day by day, and we entrust that you are doing that already in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.